All right, if you'll take your Bibles again this morning and turn to the book of John, John chapter number 17. John chapter number 17. We're going to continue our study and our series in the book of John, and we have arrived at verses 20 through 26. And this morning we want to consider the subject, Behold My Glory. Behold my glory. If you look with me at verse 24, I want you to notice the prayer of our Lord as he prays unto his Father. And I want you to notice his request. We see in verse 24 of John 17. Our Lord's words are these. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. In our text, we see Christ offering to God the Father all that is his. All that the Father has given him, Christ says, all that you have given me, that they would behold my glory and be with me where I am. Now, what we do know is that Jesus is not praying that they would be with him now in the situation that is about to occur. But remember, Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. He's getting ready to uh, be crucified, and he's going to go back to the glory he once had with the Father, which was back at the right hand. His desire was that his people, those what the Father had given him, would be there with him. We see a beautiful picture of our Lord cleaving unto his Father. Now we know he was never divided from him, he was never removed from him, he was never apart from him. But we see the words in which Jesus uses here where you can see him cleaving unto and he's reminding and, and, and saying to the Father, uh, you've loved me before the foundation of the world. I, that, I would that they who you also love through me would be able to behold my glory. We know today that to be in Christ or to be in God is to have the imputed righteousness of Christ. In other words, a man does not get salvation. He doesn't come to Christ just by simply making a decision. He's there because of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you'll notice very specifically, and we'll get into this a little bit deeper in just a few moments, the very first phrase in verse 24 he says, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me. You notice there's a declaration here. He doesn't say that the world that thou hast given me. He says the whom. That means there's a specified number here. Those that you have given me. This is a direct reference to the elect of God. So Jesus is not telling God the Father something he doesn't already know. He's reminding him of what had already been determined before the foundation of the world. Father, as you have loved me, and I have loved those that you've given, my prayer would be that they would be where I am, or where I'm going to be, and that they might be able to behold my glory. What is this glory that Jesus is speaking about? The glory of our Lord is the glory that is found in Christ as our mediator. Christ as our mediator. 
God, of course, is righteous in all of his divine persons. But the glory that Jesus is speaking about here is his role or his office as the mediator. The go-between between the, the sinner and the father. So we understand here that when Jesus is speaking about to be where I am, he is speaking about them being where he is after their own death and after his own death. So this glory that Jesus is speaking about, the glory that we see here really is three perspectives I want us to look at this morning. I want us to look at the glory of belief, number one. This is in verses 20 through 21, and we'll look at that more in depth. The glory of oneness in verses 22 and 23. And then thirdly, the glory of eternal life in verses 24 through 26. But we've got to remember that the glory is found in Jesus Christ as the mediator. The only way of access between a holy father, a holy God, and sinful man. In other, way, in other words, no man gets to the father except through the son as the mediator. So let's look at verse number 20. And this will begin to fill in the empty spaces maybe we're seeing in what Jesus is saying in verse 24. Verse 20, he says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Now, we have to understand why did Jesus mention, Neither pray I for these alone. Remember, we've been dealing with Jesus' prayer for the, uh, the disciples who were there. This is the part of the text where Jesus' prayer now changes from specifically for the disciples and now moves into prayer for all believers. Jesus introduces us to that change by saying, neither pray I for these alone. Or in other words, I'm not just praying for the disciples that are here with me now, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Now Jesus begins to play, pray for believers that will later be believers because of the word of the disciples. That's what the text means. So our Lord is not just praying for the present disciples, but for all who will believe on him through the gospel. It's an amazing thing to me that Jesus right here is praying for believers who had not even yet been born. You and I, if we're believers today, he was praying for our belief. He wasn't praying for people who would die in unbelief. You'll notice back in verse number nine, when Jesus, we began looking at this text, it tells us this, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. So Jesus in our text here in John 17, 20, he is not praying for the people who would die in unbelief, but rather he's praying for those who would believe. You see what the text says. I'm not praying for these disciples alone but I'm praying for those which shall believe. Now, when Jesus says those shall believe, that's not a they might believe, the, they will believe. He's praying specifically for those who will believe. He prayed for those who were not right then believers, but would believe. That would include you and I. We weren't alive when Jesus, of course, penned these words of the Holy Spirit, or John rather penned the words, and Jesus spoke them. But we do know that he was praying for those who were not yet believers, but would believe. You'll recall back in John 10, verse number 16, Jesus had used this type of terminology before 
when he was talking about the father and the shepherd and the sheep. And he said this, these words, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring and they shall hear my voice and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Of course, we remember from our portion in John 10 that Jesus was talking about that there were not just people of Israel that would be saved, but there were people, other sheep, the others who would be brought unto him. So the Lord here in our text is praying for those who would believe through the word. Now, let me make it as clear as we can. There is no belief without the word of God. Man may concoct a lot of different ways to God and they may begin to uh, uh, invent their own means of salvation. They may even begin to create their own way to God. But there is no salvation apart from the preaching of the word of God. It is the word of God. Now there are a great company of believers today. Now we don't know where they are. Some may be listening to a broadcast somewhere in the world today, maybe listening to this broadcast. There are people right now who at this very moment are not believers. If you ask them, do you believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation from your sin? They would say, no, I don't. But that doesn't mean that they won't someday. You see, every one of us, until we were brought to the place of our eyes being opened and our ears being unstopped, we were, we were no longer blind. We were able to see the reality of our sin. We became believers, even though we know the Bible teaches we were chosen before the foundation of the world. But understand something, Jesus is praying even right here for people who are not yet believers, but they will be. I take great comfort in knowing that even when we see people today who are not yet believers, Jesus has said, there are some who are not yet, but they will be. That's why I believe we ought to continually pray for people to believe the gospel, to repent and believe the gospel. Jesus Christ will not lose one of his own. There is not someone going to be left behind mistakenly. All that are his will come unto him. He will in no wise cast out. That's why we think it's so important that every single Sunday during this worship service, we make sure there's a, an intentional emphasis on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's the message that the world needs to hear, not just during the days in which we live, but every single day they need to be reminded to repent and believe. We go on in our text and Jesus says, continuing this prayer to the Father, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So with the understanding that Christ is the object of true faith, there is this reality that there is a union of all believers with Christ. Now, this is not just a mystical union. This is an actual union. When we are believers in Christ, we are unified with him. Jesus says, I pray that they would be one as you and I are one. In other words, Jesus says, I pray that they would have the same union or the same oneness, which we'll get a bit more detail in just a moment, that you and I have, Father. Now, we understand that 
God the Father and God the Son, because they are God, they can have nature and essence and power and purposes that transcends anything that you and I can have. He's not saying give them the same power, give them the same essence, give them the same purpose. But what he is saying, give us the same union. Give those believers the same union you and I have to be one in him. So what is it to be union in Christ or to have a union in Christ? Well, number one, we have a common faith. We all agree that the main point of the gospel is what? Salvation by Jesus Christ alone. To be in Christ, to have a union with Christ, that's the glory of belief. We all believe the same thing. That there is no salvation other than in Christ alone. Christ alone. We have that common faith. Believers that are, have a union in Christ also have a common affection. We are knit together in love. We understand that what 1 John 4 teaches us, if you'd like to turn there, 1 John chapter number 4, verses 7 through 11. This is a familiar verse here at, at our church. We, we turn to this passage a number of times, and it's so important. 1 John 4, verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So a common faith leads us to have a common affection. Our affection is what? We are knit together in love. We are in one accord. And then we get to the, the point that sometimes we miss. Why are we saved? It's for a goal or a common goal. What is that? The glory of God. We are saved not just simply to escape hell and go to heaven. We are saved for the glory of God. In other words, to be saved for the glory of God means that I have been saved, I've been redeemed to manifest his glory. That's not so easily done. Oftentimes we mistakenly think this is bringing glory to God and if it's contrary to what the word of God says brings him glory, then it cannot be so. But our chief aim in this life is to glorify Jesus Christ with our lives. We are in Christ and in God only because of his grace. I am not in Christ because I have some level of goodness. I'm not in Christ because I somehow am worthy of it. I'm not in Christ just because I simply prayed and, and asked God to give it to me. I'm in Christ because of God's grace. This grace that's been manifested in me is to be evidenced in me. I glorify Christ when the evidence of his saving mercy is seen in and through me. 
Now understand here, this is Christ's prayer for all that believe on him. All that will be converted. It is so reassuring to me today that we are not alone in this world. It is reassuring for me to know that there are believers, millions of believers all upon this planet who have this common faith, this common affection and the goal of bringing glory to God. Even through times like this, where man is left wondering, what is going on in our world? Yet for the believer, the glory of our belief is the very thing we've been talking about today. We have that everlasting hope we learned earlier this morning. But we also see this promise that Jesus himself was praying for these believers and that they would be one and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. What an amazing truth that Christ's prayer for believers would be that they would all be one. Now, I don't know about you, but my mind has a hard time. It struggles with trying to fathom the reality of what it is to be one in Christ. Because we know our depravity, we know our own wickedness, we know our own corruption, and yet, if we're a believer, we've repented, we've believed the gospel, we are said to be one with him. Christ came into this world with this definite purpose. Look what he says there. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. See, Christ didn't come without a purpose. He came into this world with a purpose to redeem those that were his, whom the Father had given him. Jesus Christ's purpose will be fulfilled. And we see the workings of this long before you and I were ever born. We see how Jesus had already prayed, had already prayed for these things and had offered up this prayer that the world would believe. So we see the glory of belief. Number two in verses 22 and 23, we see the glory of oneness. Oneness. Verse 22 says, And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them. Another profound statement. That they may be one, even as we are one. This glory of being one with the Father in Christ. Now this this was indicated back in the very first four verses of this chapter. <clears throat> Let's go back there. John 17, verse 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that they, thy son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Notice eternal life would be given to as many as the father had given to the son. And by the way, that's an innumerable number. You and I do not know that number. We will never know that number. But he says this, all that the Father has given to the Son will have eternal life. And this is life eternal, verse 3, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world 
was. We've talked about the glory that Christ had with his father. That was at the right hand. You'll recall that in Exodus 33, verses 18 and 19, Moses asked the same question. He said, show me thy glory. It's an interesting passage if you want to turn there. Exodus 33, look at verses 18 and 19. Moses made this request to show me your glory. Exodus 33, verse 18. The Bible says, and he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, this is God speaking, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Notice God's words there. He said, I'll show grace and mercy on whomever I determine to show grace and mercy to. And he said, that this is God speaking to Moses, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock. And it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in the cleft of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. God tells Moses, I will make my goodness pass in front of you. Now, let's think about this for a minute. Jesus is saying, I want them to behold my glory. When Moses made the request to see the glory of God, God says, you couldn't see my glory and live. Now, think about this for a moment. If we could actually see the entire glory of God right now, if we were to make the same request Moses made and said, God, show me all of your glory now, we would be asking God to show us the infinite grace that he has shown. We would be asking him to show us the infinite thoughts, his infinite words, all of his deeds, and everything that he is. As a matter of fact, if you asked to see the whole glory of God, it would not just be one thing. It would be asking to see the entirety of everything that God is. What Moses was asking God to do was, God, show me everything about you. God's words to Moses were this. If you could see it all, you'd die. Now, we don't think much about that today. Many places we treat God as someone who's on our level. We treat God as someone we can just kind of talk to in casual conversation. And yet when Moses, who many of us would probably agree, Moses was probably much more holy than we are. When Moses made the request, God said, Moses, you can't even look at me and live. Understand something. We don't see God's glory. This is important. We don't see God's glory with our human eyes. God is a spirit, the Bible says. So we see God and discern God not by our senses, not by what we can eyes see and what our ears hear. It must be done in the spiritual realm. Our human mind is incapable of completely comprehending who God is. 
We might say, I understand some of the perfections of God. I understand some of his attributes, but understand something. We cannot even fully understand the phrase, God is love. We don't fully understand what that means with regard to God. Not in our human, not in our humanity. It's impossible for us to fully understand that. That is the result of having a divine nature. God's qualities are above and beyond what we're even capable of understanding in this life. That's why Jesus says, I want them to behold my glory, not right now, but after they leave this world, then they'll be able to behold my glory. See, context matters. Jesus was not praying for all these things to happen now in our text. He was praying that this might be so. So the glory of this oneness, because we have received this grace and this mercy, and if we are in fact in Christ, we are said to be one with the Father. Now back in John 17, verse 23, Jesus again makes these startling statements when we look at them. I and them, thou and me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Now notice firstly, Jesus says, I and them. That means Christ is saying that I am going to be in the believer. I'm going to be in the saints and thou in me. That's Jesus saying the father is in Christ. So to be one in Christ, this oneness is to have Christ in us as the Father is in Christ. Everybody following that? That's, the, that's what he's saying. That's the glory of oneness. When I'm in Christ, I am one with the Father. What a beautiful picture here. And made perfect in one. This is a reference to perfection that is only found in glory. It's a perfection that's only found not in our human eyes and human reasoning, but only after we leave this world and are, we are with him. You see, the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. This is the very glory of what Jesus is speaking of here. When God the Father dwells in the Son, and he, Jesus Christ, through the Spirit, dwells in believers, these believers become recipients of all the riches that are in Christ. Everything, get this, everything that God is, we have when we're in Christ. What do we have? Eternal pardon from our sin. Everlasting righteousness. Our righteousness in Christ will be good today and forever because our righteousness is not ourself. It is the righteousness we have in Christ. We are partakers of love. We are partakers of joy, knowledge, and wisdom. The things we know about God, the things we know about the scripture is because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. We couldn't even understand basic Bible verses, we call them, which I would caution us. There is no basic Bible verse. People say, well, everybody knows John 3, 16. They may know what it, how it reads, but what does it mean? 
We as believers make false assumptions that everybody knows John 3, 16. Everybody knows what it means. You cannot know what it means unless the Holy Spirit dwells within you. We're given discernment and understanding by the Scripture, not by our intellect, not by our own intelligence. When we became part of the body of Christ, we became a part of everything that God is. God the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the saint. But God the Father loves the children of God in the same manner in which he loves the Son. That is mind-blowing. How can a holy, almighty God love me the way he loves his holy, perfect Son? The only way he can do that is because of the righteousness of his own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in us. Why am I loved by God the Father today is because he loves his son and he loves me because his son is in me. When he looks upon me, he doesn't see my sin. He doesn't see my corruptness. He doesn't see my depravity. He sees his son. Sadly, there are a lot of people who are say I'm a believer who've never even heard that. They say Jesus loves me and God the Father loves me because I prayed. That's not why he loves you. God the Father can only love the children, the believer, that because of the righteousness of Christ in them. That's the only way it happens. Christ, when he came to this world, the incarnation, he became sin for us. He became a man without ever ceasing to be God. This are the principles. These are the principles in which Jesus is praying for. He says, love them the way that you loved me. Don't ever get over that. Don't ever get over the reality. How can someone like me and my wickedness be loved? Because you're loved in Christ. This is the glory of belief and the glory of oneness. Thirdly, let's consider the glory of eternal life. Verse 24, the text we began with. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee. Notice that. But I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. Jesus draws a line between those who know him and those who don't. This glory is eternal life. Eternal life was placed in the Son, Jesus Christ, by the Father. Christ the Son purchased and perfected the work of redemption. Again, we say this often, but the cross, Jesus Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection, did not make salvation possible. It accomplished it. There's a huge difference in that. We don't preach a gospel that says the cross made salvation possible. We preach that the cross accomplished redemption for every single person that the Father gave to the Son. That means Christ's death was atoning for every believer. What a thought. 
We've already heard this morning about the promise that we have of an everlasting hope. We have a promise of the resurrection. We have a promise that to be, to be dead in Christ is to be asleep in Jesus. And there is a resurrection day coming. And we're not to sorrow and grieve as people who have no hope. But we actually have the promise that one day we're going to be with him where he is. And we will behold his glory. Now, we cannot say today that we can fully comprehend what Jesus was asking for about behold my glory. We shouldn't be so arrogant to believe that if Moses couldn't see God and live, that we should. But we one day will be able to behold his glory. Behold my glory that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. Notice again that Jesus is mentioning again and again and again. He never separates himself from God the Father. Remember, Jesus never acted alone. He never did his own thing. But what is the glory of eternal life? To see and to know that I have eternal life. Now don't miss this is to see the glory of God now. If I see and know that I have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, I am seeing the glory of God. Now, not in its fullness. I'm not seeing it all. There's a, a passage in 1 John. We've gone there a couple times this morning. But 1 John 3, verses 1 through 3. 1 John 3, verses 1 through 3. And in this particular context, John is warning about deception. He says in verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. Note that. We do not have the vision the view or the appearance of what we shall be yet. Remember, it's often made the mistake is made that people say heaven with Christ or heaven is just going to be a better version of earth. That's not true at all. He says that when he shall appear later on, but we know that. Remember, we've talked about this today already. There's things we can know and there's things we can't know. Here's what he says we can know about that. That we are not yet what we will be, but we know that when he shall appear, here it is, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Friends, to even try to fathom what he's saying here is, is remarkable. Number one, to be like him is unthinkable right now. If you think right now it's not unthinkable for you to be like Christ, I would highly suggest you look and examine your own heart. That alone is remarkable. That we are going to lose this corruption. We're going to lose this depravity. This total depravity we're going to lose. This corruption that separates us from the Holy God. We're going to lose it. And we shall what? See him as he is. Why couldn't Moses see God? Because he couldn't see him with his natural sinful eyes and live. 
Just like you and I can't look at God in our natural sinful eyes and live. But one day, when we are changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, when we receive a glorified body, we will be able to see him like he is. Why? Because we'll be like him. The only way you can see his entirety of his glory is to be like him. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. This is amazing. There's the word hope again. Everlasting hope from the first exposition we looked at this morning. Here it is again, hope. To see life, to see eternal life is to live. To see his glory is when we shall be glorified with him. People often say, what am I going to do for eternity? And I hear lots of things, and we've all heard lots of things, uh, whether it's when we were young children or whatever it was. I think people are going to be surprised that our e entire eternal job, I'm going to use that term, it's probably not the right term, is going to be the glory, praise, worship, and adoration of Christ. While you're so worried about what you're going to do in heaven, what you're actually going to be doing is worshiping the Lord. Now see, our human, our human eyes and reasoning says, how can that be all there is? Because we want to make heaven an extension of here. And we think we're going to go about our daily life like we do now, and we're like we used to, right? We're going to go about our day-to-day -day life, do whatever we want to do, and we're just going to be religious. No, your entire, the entirety of your eternity will be spent worshiping and adoring the Lord Jesus Christ. You will, in fact, be beholding his glory. You see, remember, we've made a lot of things up during our Christian lives Things that we don't really know and we've kind of put pieces together to say, here's what I think it's going to be like. Here's how I think heaven's going to be. And we've made a lot of things up instead of focusing on what we can know. If you need to know more than what John just said about we shall be like him and we shall see him as he is and then take what we learned this morning about forever being with the Lord. Friends, that's more than we can even comprehend today. And yet, those are the things that we know. Why do we know them? Because the Bible says that's what shall be. We've got to be careful that we stop making up Christianity and make and focus on what the Bible actually says. And it's interesting that this, this final two verses, O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. Listen, there are many, many world religions today. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure we could list them all. There are religions that even people are not even aware of, but here's the truth of the matter. He says, the world hath not known thee. Any religion that is apart from the Lord Jesus Christ does not know God. It's impossible to know God without knowing Christ. Here's the reality. The Son, Jesus Christ, knows the Father. And through Christ, He has manifested the Father to every believer. 
Today, if you're in Christ, if you have repented of your sins, you believe on Christ alone, you know Jesus Christ to be the Messiah. You know him to be the only redeemer. You know him to be the only savior of the world. And you know that Jesus Christ was sent by the Father. You have no doubts about these things. The love of God has been revealed to our sinful heart through Jesus Christ. Again, it leads us back to 1 John, again, 1 John 4, verse 19. I'll just read it to you. We love him because he first loved us. Friends, the only reason if you have a love for God today is because he loved you first. You see, the gospel is not about a call to love God. The gospel is he loves you. You cannot call a sinful man just to simply love a God he doesn't know. You can only call a sinful man to love God when he knows that God loves him. And that leads us back to what Jesus had said. There's a world, not all the world knows me. But Jesus says, I've known thee. And these have known that thou hast sent me. Again, contextually, he's speaking about the disciples in the first half of this chapter. And now he's speaking about all believers. They know you. Why? Because they know me. I know God the Father today because I know his son. To be saved today, you must know Christ. A very short time we see is going to pass. We're going to finish this final verse. And I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. God loved his son as the mediator. That's what we started off with. God loves his children as God the Father loves his Son. Those that are in Christ are loved by the Father with the same love that the Father has for the Son. Again, not because we're lovable, but because of Jesus Christ. Friends, we cannot say it enough and we cannot repeat it enough that apart from Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. And you have this moment, you have this time, you have this opportunity when you are under the sound of the preaching of the word of God, when the Holy Spirit is opening your eyes and unstopping your ears and showing you the truth, it is not an invitation to believe. It is a command to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, to repent of your sins. You are trusting in Jesus Christ alone. But you are not doing that just because you suddenly had a moment of intellect. You're doing that because the promises, the word of God itself said that all that the Father hath given to me shall come unto me. You come unto Christ by the very choice of God. And again, we struggle in our humanity. Why does God get to choose? 
Because He's God. We make choices every day and we don't question it. We make choices and we're allowed to make choices. But when God says, I have chosen you in Christ before the foundation of the world, we like to make it say many, many things instead of simply saying, you know what? If I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I take comfort in knowing that before the foundation of the world, God the Father gave me to the Son. And the Lord Jesus Christ, when he went to the cross, he didn't just make salvation possible. He accomplished my redemption. He atoned for my sin. What's amazing about this text, among many, many things, is that shortly after this, when we get into John chapter number 18, we begin to see that the prayers that Jesus made, they begin to radically change. He starts praying very differently. Now, what's interesting in the Gospels, John does not record this particular prayer but Matthew does. I would encourage you, even before we get into John 18 next week, that you avail yourself and read through Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. You will see Jesus' prayer in the garden. His prayer is now different than what it is when we see in John 17. We begin to see words and phrases that we have not seen Jesus use before. He begins to speak in terms that we have not seen him use. Remember, the hour is now come. He is now on the doorstep of going to the cross. He is now at the very place where all that was planned before the foundation of the world, the appointed hour is come. We know that that's part of the time when Jesus tells his disciples to watch and pray. And yet, they can't even for one hour pray because their flesh is so weak. We see Jesus making a request to his Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Make no mistake about it, Jesus was not having second thoughts. He wasn't saying, I'm not sure I can go through with this. For him not to go through with it would have been disobedience. And for Jesus to be disobedient would have made he ceased to be God, which is an impossibility. Christ himself said, it's not my will, Father, it's your will. Listen, there's quite, there, there's, a, there's a, a majesty about this prayer we've read and learned about in John 17. But understand something, this is all leading us to what Jesus came to do. And he came to fulfill the purpose and the plan of God the Father. And just as Jesus prayed as we began this prayer in John 17, all that you have given to me, I will bring with me. Listen, if you're in Christ today, you're in Christ because the Father gave you to the Son. That ought to cause us to rejoice. It ought to cause us to, to, to thank the Lord above that we have been chosen in the beloved. Listen, either Christ is your all in all or he's nothing. Christ isn't just part of your salvation. He is your salvation. Christ didn't just make your salvation possible. He accomplished your salvation. And today, the call is to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repentance doesn't mean you're going to live a sinless life, but it's an acknowledgement 
of understanding that I have transgressed, I have sinned against a holy, righteous God, and my only means of reconciliation is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And I believe and call upon him alone for my salvation. Listen, if your eyes have been opened today, your ears have been unstopped to hear, today is the day. Repent and believe the gospel. As we conclude each one of our Sunday meetings, I'm going to conclude with a reading from the Valley of Vision. And this one is entitled, Love Shed Abroad. Uh, Many of you have the Valley of Vision and you do follow along. In many of the editions, it's on page 252. I know some have ones that the pages will not match up, but this does, this is entitled Love Shed Abroad. It reads this way, Gracious God, my heart praises thee for the wonder of thy love in Jesus. He is heaven's darling, but is for me the incarnate, despised, rejected, crucified, sin bearer. In him thy grace has almost outgraced itself. In him thy love to rebels has reached its height. Oh, to love thee with a love like this. My heart is stone, melt it with thy love. My heart is locked, let thy love be the master key to open it. Oh, Father, I adore thee for thy great love and the gift of Jesus. Oh, Jesus, I bless thee for resigning thy life for me. O Holy Spirit, I thank Thee for revealing to me this mystery. Great God, let Thy Son see in me the travail of His soul. Bring me away from my false trust to rest in Him and Him only. Let me not be so callous to His merit and as not to love Him, so indifferent to His blood as not to desire cleansing. Lord Jesus, Master, Redeemer, Savior, come and take entire possession of me. This is Thy right by purchase. In the arms of love, enfold and subdue my willful spirit. Take, sanctify, use my every faculty. I am not ashamed of my hope, nor has my confidence led me into confusion. I trusted in thee regarding my innumerable sins, and thou hast cast them behind thy back. I trusted in thee when evils encompassed me, and thou broughtest me out into a wealthy place. I trusted in thee in an hour of distress, and thou didst not fail me, though faith trembled. O God of the eternal choice, O God of the restored possession purchased on the tree, O God of the effectual call, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I adore thy glory, honor, majesty, power, dominion forever. We're going to conclude this morning with the closing hymn, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. And uh, we'll play through the entirety of that hymn. I'd encourage you uh, right where you are to just take these last few moments of the broadcast and just kind of think upon what we've heard today, to meditate upon the words. And uh, then we will uh, we'll all be on our way. And we'll look forward to those that can join us Wednesday evening. We'll be on Facebook Live again uh, Wednesday at 7 o'clock. But let's take these last few moments as we just kind of listen to this song. If you know the words, you have the songbook at home. You can certainly sing together. I ask the Lord that I might grow.